Well, I invite you, as usual, take your copy of God's Word and open it uh, once more to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 will be uh, our focus this morning, a sermon that I've uh, titled, A Caring Confrontation. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. As human beings, we find ourselves regularly in decision-making moments. And usually, not usually, but often, we find decision-making moments don't always happen through a a rational course of consideration and and logical reasoning and all that. Sometimes, yes, but sometimes we make decisions after a kid just says no to you too many times in the home. Or after a salesman persists just a bit too hard, that will bring you to a decision-making moment. Maybe you get one too many emails or and, and, and you decide, nope, that's, that's it, I'm cutting them off, I'm unsubscribing, whatever, that's the decision to, 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 to be made. Or maybe the other way around, positively, maybe you got just the right sample at Costco, coupled with a discount, and you weren't going to buy a pallet of that, but it's on sale today. Or maybe your child surprises you with their, with their, their demonstration of responsibility, Or you get an email for just the thing you were looking for, and you don't hit unsubscribe, you hit subscribe. Little moments like these can go a long way in leading us to decisions. In this last in a series of confrontations between Jesus and some of the religious elite in John 3, or I'm sorry, Mark 3, 1 to 6, Jesus does one more thing in front of the Pharisees that causes them to make a decision. It's not a good decision, it's a bad one, a decision ultimately to seek his destruction. Here in Mark 3, 1 to 6, Jesus uh, on the Sabbath in a synagogue dismantles the legalism of the Pharisees in order to demonstrate his compassion for the spiritually needy. The main idea that comes to us, the call that comes to us from Mark 3, 1 to 6 is this, that if they will come to him, Jesus gives fullness of life to the lame and to the loveless legalist alike. There, there is forgiveness and fullness of life to all who come to Jesus, if they will come to Him. The problem is many choose not to. So as we turn our attention to God's Word, I invite you to stand as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark 3, 1-6. Stand with me. There, Mark, the ministry partner of Peter the Apostle, And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit records this event, writing, Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. You may be seated. If they will come to him, Jesus gives fullness of life to the lame and the loveless legalist alike. This scene begins with a suspicious suspicious setting. Verses 1 and 2 set the 
picture for us. As the scene opens, we return to one of Jesus' favorite places to preach, the synagogue, this communal gathering place amongst communities of Jewish people where they would go regularly for uh, reading and teaching of God's Word, for worship together, and for prayer. We know that it was Jesus' pattern to go to these places, these Jewish houses of worship, and reading and teaching of the law to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. He starts doing it as early as Mark chapter 1, verse 29, demonstrating his pattern there. It appears that it is again a Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. Perhaps it's the same Sabbath day as the passage before this one with the uh, instance of the disciples plucking heads of grain as they're walking through a field. Maybe it's a different Sabbath. Mark doesn't make it entirely clear, but that's not a major issue for us. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we're told that there in that synagogue that day is a man with a withered hand, a dried up hand. That's a strange way of describing it, I think. I think of like uh, uh, Skeletor or Mumra or something you know, from some, you know, Mumra from He-Man. Is that He-Man? Yeah, that's He-Man. There are people here that were born in the 80s and watched the same cartoons as I did. Is Mumra from He-Man? Aaron, Corey, is Mumra from He-Man? Thundercats! Thank you, it's Thundercats. I knew that. Amen. Oh, man, that was a rabbit trail. I apologize. That doesn't happen often. Mumra, this like, you know, mummy guy. He's got a guy with a withered hand. It's weird to describe it that way. That's not uh, probably a better description of this man is that he has a, a paralyzed hand or a deformed hand or a disabled hand. That's about all that we know about him. We don't know if it's the course of an accident or a, a birth defect or some sort of neurological condition, but he's a disabled man there in the synagogue. Now, already in the course of Mark, we're only barely at the start of chapter 3, but already we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. He's cast out demons, he's healed the sick, he's restored health to a paralyzed man. And so, if someone with some infirmity is in the presence of Jesus, we begin to wonder what's going to happen next. And so, too, it seems, were the Pharisees who we're told in verse 2 were watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, specifically whether he would heal this disabled man on the Sabbath day. Now, the previous episode with the disciples plugging, plucking grain on the Sabbath has already primed us for the conflict that's about to erupt in this scene. The Pharisees, we expect, and Mark tells us, are watching to see what Jesus will do. If he will exert effort and heal a man on the Sabbath day, this day of rest, specifically because they are looking to bring charges against Jesus as a religious lawbreaker. You might be wondering at this point, having been through parts of Mark before, maybe going back and rereading as we make our way through, why didn't the Pharisees or these other religious leaders, why didn't they charge Jesus with the crime of working on the Sabbath when he cast a demon out of a man on the Sabbath all the way back in chapter 1? Well, it seems the answer there is that Jesus did so only with words. He said to the demon-possessed man or to the demon in, in, within possessing the man, come out of him. He didn't use therapeutic touch. He didn't use medical intervention just the spoken word. 
And medical intervention was prohibited by Pharisees on the Sabbath unless death or danger was imminent. So it could be that they were just, uh, maybe Jesus just skirted the, their expectations on that particular instance. But it seems also fair to say that by this point, the Pharisees have it out for Jesus. And they're going to look for anything that they can to hang a charge of heresy or law-breaking on him. They've had enough interactions, they've had enough conflicts with him to know where the trajectory of their relationship to him is going. And Mark doesn't say, and we're not exactly free to assume, but this whole scene looks a little bit like a setup. Now, I'm not implying that the disabled man is a plant. I, I don't think he is. He's, he's genuinely disabled. Nor do I think that the disabled man is somehow in on a plot to trap Jesus. I believe he's truly an innocent bystander there to worship on that day. But the Pharisees, suspicious of Jesus already, are coming to a place where they will use anything to get what they want, which is Jesus out of the picture. Let this be a lesson and reminder to us that the enemies of Christ will look for any reason, logical or otherwise, to find fault with Him. Let it be also a lesson to us that the sinfulness of our own hearts will often look for any reason to justify our own sin and our own resistance to repent. It's easy to lash out and to call names of those who oppose Jesus. It's not so easy to look into our own hearts to see the ways that we find excuses not to be obedient to Him. In the several instances before this one, starting all the way back at the beginning of chapter 2 with Jesus healing the paralyzed man, the Pharisees have been the first ones to talk to Jesus, to challenge Him, to confront Him. They ask the question first. And in every episode, their confrontation has centered around Jesus not living up to their expectations for Him or for what the law says uh, ought to be the case. But here, in this final of these confrontation scenes at the beginning of Mark, Jesus turns the table on the Pharisees, and this time, He speaks first. Which leads us to verses 3 to 5, this caring confrontation that's right at the center of this event. Verse 3 has Jesus looking to the disabled man and calling him to the center of the room. Synagogues were small one-room buildings with benches built into the walls uh, around the inside perimeter, and the teacher or the reader of Scripture on the particular day of worship there would stand in the middle of the group to lead. So Jesus says literally to the man, come here to the middle. Perhaps Jesus was intending or invited by synagogue leaders to teach that day. That wouldn't have been out of the norm. But all the same, he calls the man, this disabled man, to himself in front of everyone for everyone to see. But then he doesn't speak to the man, but he speaks to those who are present. And I think we are meant to understand that Jesus is speaking most directly to the Pharisees. His question is simple, isn't it? Tell me, he says, especially you experts of the law of God, is it lawful on the Sabbath, that day of weekly rest and worship, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, almost anyone reading this has no need to know much about anything, uh, to know anything about the law in order to give the right answer. It's pretty easy, right? Right? But if we listen just a little bit closer to Jesus, we'll hear an echo of the law itself in his question. Jesus isn't asking a question all, all on its own. He almost never does. 
He almost always asks questions that are rooted in something that the people he's asking should already know the answer to. The echo in Jesus' question to the law comes from the book of Deuteronomy. This is the last book of the Jewish law or Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. There, Moses says to the people of Israel, after having repeated God's law to them as they are approaching and about to enter into the promised land, along with all of the promised blessings for keeping the law and all of the promised curses for breaking the law, uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, 15, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. To keep the law is life and blessing. To disobey the law is death and curse. Now Jesus reorders the words a little bit, but you hear the echo, don't you? What does the law say about what is right to do on the Sabbath? Good or evil? Life or death? An astute listener knows that God's law, faithfully kept, always leads to life and good. And so easy, so easy question for the experts in the law. It should be an easy question for the experts in the law. What's lawful to do? Good and life or evil and death? As it turns out, this is an impossibly hard question for the Pharisees to answer. So hard, in fact, that they refuse to answer and they remain silent. Verse 4, but they were silent. If they say to Jesus' question, that it's lawful to do evil and harm. That's what we ought to do. Well, then they obviously answer wrongly because it's never right on the Sabbath day or any other day for that matter to do what is wicked. But if the Pharisees answer the way that the question is meant to be answered, if they say that it is lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath, well, then they place themselves in a position of contravening their own interpolation of the law that would seek to see the disciples on another Sabbath day stoned for grabbing a snack from a wheat field to stave off their hunger. And that is to say nothing of the fact that on this occasion, Jesus is the powerful healer standing with, here with a disabled man right in front of them. What's best to do, Pharisees, on the Sabbath? Death, evil and death, or good and life with this disabled man right here next to me. Now, Jesus, in genuine care for the disabled man, is confronting the Pharisees about their self-righteous rule-keeping. We've seen it on display in them over the last several episodes. It ought to be right and lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus himself tells the Pharisees in a, a parallel uh, uh, telling of the story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter Matthew 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees that even they would lift a sheep out of a well if it fell into a well on the Sabbath. And if a sheep, how much more a man or son? If the Sabbath is to be a life-giving day of rest and worship of God, if any day is a good day to save a life, it should be the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees, to his question, say nothing. They're totally silent. And their refusal to answer a simple question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or kill? Their refusal to answer this question causes Jesus to respond in two ways. First, in anger. Did you see that? Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. 
I had to ask myself this week, knowing all I know about the trouble that my own anger causes me, as James tells us, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. What in the world could Jesus be angry about? So I went looking for the times where Jesus gets angry with people in the Gospels. He gets angry with the Pharisees here in this instance for refusing to answer a question about the law. In Mark chapter 10, he gets angry when the disciples prevent children from coming to him. In Mark 11, he gets angry with a fig tree that looks fruitful but has no fruit as a picture of false teachers. In Matthew 17, Jesus gets angry with a demon who is oppressing a young boy. In Matthew 16 and Mark 8, Jesus gets angry with Peter when Peter tries to talk him out of God's plan for Christ's own death for redemption from sins. In Matthew 23, he gets angry with the Pharisees who burden the people with laws and expectations that they themselves are unwilling to lift. In Mark 11, 20, uh, Mark 11 Matthew 21, Luke 19, John chapter 2, Jesus gets angry with those who use the worship of God in the temple as a means for personal profit as he clears out the temple of the money changers. A similar theme occurs in these many instances of Jesus' anger throughout the Gospels. Jesus expresses anger when religious people or evil spirits put up barriers to receiving life, wholeness, or expressing true worship of God, or who otherwise would try to deter Christ from fulfilling God's word. Jesus gets angry for good reasons. He gets angry when people try to keep others from coming to God. He, he gets angry with evil spirits who are oppressing people to the point that they're not able to know life and fullness. He gets angry when people would deter him from fulfilling God's will for his life. In this instance, I believe Jesus' anger has arisen against the Pharisees because their silence has spoken volumes about what they really believe. In their legal expertise, they have so lawyered themselves into a corner that they are unwilling to give approval to the healing of a disabled man, an act that would give him fullness of life and health and wholeness simply because it happens to be the wrong day of the week for stuff like that. Let me ask you, friends, when is the right time to do what is right? When is the right time to share the gospel with someone? When is the right time to point someone to Jesus? Who is the right person to proclaim the hope of Jesus to? What day is the best day to be obedient to Christ? The answer in your mind ought to be every day, every hour, every person. If you find yourself looking for religious exemptions from doing what is right, you may be squarely in the crosshairs of Christ's righteous indignation at neglecting to reflect His character in the world. There is never a wrong time to do what is right. Now, there are wrong ways to do what is right, with the wrong attitude, with the wrong, wrong sorts of words, with the wrong intentions, but there's never a wrong time to do what is right. When Jesus presents the Pharisees with this question, when is the right time to do good? And they don't answer, he gets angry because they've lawyered themselves into a corner and made themselves unable to help those in need because it happens to be the wrong day of the week. But Jesus isn't just angry. He has a second reaction too. Yes, he's angry, but he's also grieved. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. His second reaction is grief. Grief at their hardened hearts. 
like Pharaoh in the Exodus and the rebellious generation of Israelites who grumbled against God in the wilderness and the, the panoply of rebellious kings of Israel and the people who worshipped idols and false gods all throughout the Old Testament and would not hear the voice of God calling them to repent, these Pharisees have calloused their hearts to the person and work of God among them. Their hardness of heart and the hardness of heart of every person who, who has it is a result of sinful rebellion against God. These Pharisees aren't hard-hearted because they're just in a mood that day. They're hard-hearted because of their sinful internal rebellion against God. Jeremiah 18.12 says that those who refuse the Lord say that repentance from sin is vain. We will follow our own plans and we will everyone act according, accordingly to the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that hard-heartedness comes from blinding our eyes to the light of God's reason and grace and alienating ourselves from God by our willful ignorance of Him. The Pharisees are hard-hearted because knowing the law, they've sought to use the law as a means for personal promotion, not for loving obedience to God. And Jesus is grieved by this. I love what happens in what follows. Jesus says to the man with the disabled hand, the first time, well, he says two things to the man. Come here. He asks a question of the Pharisees, and then when he addresses the man next, he simply says, stretch out your hand. And we find in his obedience, the man is made well. He stretches out his hand and it's restored. It's no longer dried up, withered, disabled, deformed, paralyzed. No longer has a mumrah hand. He has a healthy, whole, restored hand. And, and, and with a restored hand, everything else that he's able to do with it. Here's very good news for you, friend. That if you are a heart of heart, rebellious against God, resisting His work in you, He still grieves for you. What He desires to give you is a new heart. Your sin angers Him. Yes, God is a righteous judge and sin twists the intention for our living which God has given to us in creating us. But your breach of fellowship with God because of your sin also grieves Him because you were made for relationship with Him. So in His anger against sin and in His love for you, dear sinner, God has given His Son, Jesus the Christ, as we saw last week, the Lord of the Sabbath, to absorb, in his, to absorb God's righteous wrath against your sin by dying for you and your sins. In His power, He's raised that same Jesus from the dead so that you, if you'll come to Him in total faith and dependence upon Him, you might be made whole like this disabled man who did nothing to receive healing, but answered the call to come to Jesus and stretch out his hand so you might be made well in spirit. You might be made whole in your soul by bringing your broken soul, your, dead, uh, your deadness in your sins to be, a made, to be made alive in Jesus. Now, this is the hope of the gospel, that Jesus calls the lame man and the loveless legalist both to be made whole by him. There's a suspicious setting. There's a confrontation of care by Jesus. He confronts the Pharisees as he cares for this man. But the scene closes in verse 6 with a destructive determination. The man stretches out his hand. His hand is restored. 
the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This scene closes with the Pharisees not doing what Jesus desires for them. Rather than coming to him to be made spiritually well, they leave. In the hardness of their hearts, they are unwilling to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Thinking that they see everything clearly, they are blind to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Having filled their ears with all their own legalistic teaching, they have become deaf to the truth that what they need is not to do more, not to try harder, not to be better, but to come to Jesus in simple faith to be made spiritually well and whole. These Pharisees' stony hearts cement in rebellion against Jesus, and they go off to the Herodians to plot against Him. Now, the Herodians were in that day supporters of Herod Antipas, who was the Roman-appointed ruler over the, uh, over the area at the time, who himself had John the Baptist arrested and ultimately executed because John the Baptist had the audacity to call Herod Antipas to repent. Pharisees, by nature, were not fans of the Herodians. Because the Herodians, as they saw it, were in bed politically with the Romans. And Pharisees thought the Romans were this oppressive, invasive force. They wanted them gone. But their hatred of Jesus, surpassing that of their hatred for the Romans and the Herodians, has caused them now to throw in their hat with, uh, 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 with their enemy against what they perceive to be a greater threat. The saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, seems very much to be the case here. You have two people opposed to one another and to the work of God among His people, uh, even though they don't like each other, they're willing to get along in order to remove a common threat. And this scene closes with the saddest of ironies. Those who thought they could see are proven blind. Those who thought they could hear are proven deaf. Those who thought they loved God's law are proven to be stone-hearted. Those who preach the righteous law of God leave the scene plotting murder. Those who would not answer the question, what is it lawful to do? What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To give life or to kill? Leave on that Sabbath day plotting a man's death. And this is where the whole of these last five confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees have been leading to set the Pharisees stalwartly against Jesus such that they would see Him destroyed. At this, I have but one admonition to you today, friends. Do not be like these Pharisees. Do not repeat this tragic irony. Hear with ears of faith the gospel call to come to Jesus. Himself, the righteous law giver and completion of the law. See with God's help and with eyes of faith the truth of who Jesus is. The Son of God and only Savior for sinners. And receive Him with a heart that has been softened by the Holy Spirit of God as King of your life and Lord of your heart. Don't be like these Pharisees, but be like this man who in humble, simple faith stretches out his hand to receive what only Christ can give him. Now the Pharisees would be successful for a moment in killing Jesus. We know that their plot succeeds. They did have him eventually put to death, but the great and glorious irony of it all is that the success of their plan 
worked to bring about the success of a greater overwhelming plan. The death of Jesus was not the ultimate demise and destruction of Jesus, but it was the destruction in His body of sin and death for all who would trust in Him. His death for sins makes our death to sin possible. And His resurrection makes our resurrection possible. But only for those whose hearts are softened to believe Him, who have not so lawyered themselves up that they are, that is, that they are incapable of responding to Him. This redemption, this rescue, this resurrection is only to those who come to Him when He calls and to stretch out the limbs of our restored hearts in worship of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dear friend, are you a spiritually disabled sinner looking to be made whole? Are you crippled by the weight of sin in your life and the recognition that you have not lived up to, nor could you ever live up to the righteous standard of God's holiness and you are just broken over it? There's hope for you in Jesus who says simply, come to me. Receive what only I can give to you. Come to the one who was who, who had no sin but was made sin for us in dying on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God. Are you looking to be made whole? Come to Jesus. Are you, Christian, a loveless legalist who needs a new heart? Have you so lawyered yourself up with religion that you don't see any hope for anyone who doesn't believe exactly like you do and who doesn't live life and go to church and do all the things exactly the way that you do? Are you a loveless legalist? has lost his first love of the gospel? Do you need a new heart? Jesus calls you too. He says to you too, come here. Come to the middle. Come to me. Find healing and life and forgiveness and softness of heart in him. Jesus gives wholeness, fullness of life to the lame and to the loveless legalist alike. But he only gives it to those who will in faith leave their sin and come to him. This is the call of the gospel that transforms lives like this disabled man and also when put out hardens the hearts of those who don't want to believe it. Hardens the hearts of those who 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 want to say and want to believe that you must have everything in your life put together in just such a way before you come to Jesus. It hardens the hearts of those who, who, who would want to say only certain people can come to Him. Only certain people can be in our fellowship on Sunday mornings as we preach God's Word and pray and rejoice in song together. For the one who is a loveless legalist, the gospel of, Christ, of grace in Jesus Christ hardens hearts. But for those who are broken and know that they need rest and healing, the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ is life-giving. It moves people out of their seats who are broken and disabled in, 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 in the deadness of our sin to say to Jesus, I have nowhere else to go but you, so make me well. And that's the invitation to all of you today. Whether you're someone who is not a Christian, still dead in your sin but looking for healing, or whether you are someone who is like these Pharisees, these loveless legalists, who, who need to have your heart softened to the reality of God's character and nature and love in saving people who are broken. The call to all of us from Jesus today is this, come here, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Do you need rest for your souls? You'll find it in Christ. 
Do you need healing from your sin? You'll find it in Him only. Do you need a heart softened by God's grace to love those who are not lovable, to extend grace to those who need it? You'll only get it from Jesus. You'll never be able to give it to others if you haven't first received it from Christ. So that's the call. Come here. Come to Jesus. It's for all of us. Let's answer appropriately.